This morning, I'd like to ask you, where's the first mention of fire and brimstone in the Bible? And I think you perhaps <coughs> would be aware that it is Sodom and Gomorrah. If I said to you, where's the last mention of fire and brimstone in the Bible? It is found in the second to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21.8 is the last mention of fire and brimstone. Now, if I said, what is the connection between those two? The Bible makes it very clear, Sodom and Gomorrah illustrates eternal hell. Now, we know that because Peter makes the connection very, very clear in 2 Peter 2, verses 6 and 9, and notice what Peter says. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now the day of judgment there is a reference to the great white throne judgment as a prelude to eternal hell. One of the values of preaching a series like we are doing in the life of Abraham is that we are required to handle the hard texts. It is generally thought that Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns that were associated with them we're at the south end of the Dead Sea, an area that, that today is covered by water. Archaeologists have discovered extensive burning in this area, which is consistent with what the Bible says about God raining down fire and brimstone on these five towns. The entire area was wiped out by God including men, women, children, animals, everything. And I have to say to you this morning, it would be very easy to skip these hard chapters. Very, very easy to skip them. But this series in the life of Abraham forces me to preach the whole counsel of God. And that's what you want coming from the pulpit. You want a pastor who preaches not only the easy things in the Bible, but preaches the hard things as well. Now, this last portion of Genesis 18, where we are in our series, is extremely important because it answers this <coughs> very vital question. Is eternal hell fair? Any thinking person, when they read what the Bible has to say about eternal hell, asks this question, is this fair? You see, if all we had was Genesis 19 and the account of the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, we might conclude that God is mean, unjust, even evil. But the preamble that we are going to see today to the fire and the brimstone exonerates the justice of God. 
And it shows that his judgment of eternal hell is entirely fair. So this morning, let's look at the answers that our text gives us to this question. Is eternal hell fair? Here's the first answer that the Bible gives to us. God reveals the standard for judgment. God reveals the standard for judgment. Look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 18, and I want to start at verse 16 down to verse 19, and I encourage you to follow along. Then the man set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, literally I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, after telling Abraham and Sarah about the coming birth of the miracle child Isaac, the men, whom we now know very clearly are two angels, and the third is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself in a pre-incarnate form, looked down toward Sodom. And I want you to notice what the Lord, who we now know is the Son of God, said to the other two angels who were with him. He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Please mark in your Bibles that word hide. God would not destroy until he had revealed why. That is so very important. You see, according to verse 18, God's plan was to bring the blessings of salvation to the five little towns at the southern end of the Dead Sea. The words in verse 18, if you will compare them to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, are almost identical to the original promise made to Abraham. Remember, the blessing there was salvation, ultimately, that would be brought in the Lord Jesus Christ. But these towns rejected that blessing when Abraham rescued them back in chapter 14 from the captivity they had been subjected to. Now notice what God is doing. God is revealing his standard to Abraham so that everyone else will be warned. Do you know this is the very first time we are told why God chose Abraham to make a covenant with him? Up until now, we are told what God promised Abraham. Now, for the very first time, we are told why he chose Abraham, made the promises, and entered into a blood covenant with him. God chose Abraham so that the nation of Israel would reveal God's standard to the world. Verse 19, God says to Abraham, I want you to teach your descendants to keep the way of the Lord. Mark that down. 
The way of the Lord is a comprehensive expression for all that God requires. It is very, very similar to Micah 6.8 where the prophet says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Brothers and sisters, that is the way of righteousness. It's the way of the Lord. Now, when he describes that way here as the way of righteousness and justice, what we need to understand is this is a summary of the Ten Commandments. This expression anticipates the giving of the law. Righteousness refers to what is morally right in relationship to God. That's the first table of the law, Commandments 1 to 4. Justice refers to what is socially right in our relationships with people. That is the second table of the law, the last six commandments. Through Abraham, the believers, the Hebrews, have given the law of God in the Torah to the entire world. But there's something more. God has given the law in another way. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 that the law is written on our hearts through our conscience. And we all know what the conscience is. It's that little voice down inside that either excuses us or accuses us. Have you ever stopped to observe that even drug dealers are outraged if you steal drugs from them? Where did they get that standard? Or prisoners who will threaten you if you snitch on them are still incensed if you lie to them. Where did they learn that standard? The Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, as many of you know, was an atheist. Before God finally brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. And he said one of the reasons why he rejected the possibility of a God was all the injustice in the world. But then Lewis realized I've got a problem. Where did I get the idea of justice from in the first place? An honest man, right? Facing a real question. And here's what Lewis said. Man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? How perceptive. How perceptive. The very complaint that the world is unjust implies a God who is just. And God has clearly revealed his standard to the whole world. 
Second reason in this text, the second answer to the question, why is hell fair, is this. God obtains the evidence for judgment. God obtains the evidence for judgment. Look with me at verse 20 and notice verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know it. Now notice how the text tells us that the Lord came down. Doesn't that seem strange to you? God is omniscient. God knows everything. Why would he need to go down personally to investigate the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? And you know the answer. This is not done for God's benefit. Whose benefit it is done for? It's our benefit. This is the language of condescension. So that all of us will know God's judgment is not arbitrary. God carefully collects the facts. That's what he does. Did you notice those two phrases? I will see. And I will know. What did God see? And what did he know? At the end of the Old Testament, God accuses his own people of becoming like Sodom. It is shocking that the descendants of Abraham became like Sodom. And look what God says in Ezekiel 16:49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor, and the needy. Any of those sins in America today? I've been guilty then more than a little pride. How about you? How about you? How serious is sin to a holy God? One of the men, pastors, who thought very deeply on this was Pastor Jonathan Edwards. I love reading Edwards because he thought very deeply on Scripture, and then he worked out the implications of what he saw in the Bible. And I want you to notice what this great pastor theologian said as he read and studied his Bible. He who commits any one sin 
as guilt and ill desert so great that the value and merit of all the good which it is possible he should do in his whole life is as nothing to it. And then his conclusion, which clearly follows, God can never require imperfect obedience or by his holy law allow us to be guilty of any one sin, how small soever. What scriptures did Edwards study that led him to these conclusions? Well, how about these two? Here's James, the half-brother of Jesus in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And Jesus' words in Matthew 12.36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You know what a careless word is. It is a thoughtless word uttered in selfishness. What we would consider a very small sin. And yet Jesus said, on the day of judgment, we are accountable for the smallest sin. When I think of the facts God has collected upon me, if I were outside of Jesus Christ, I would shake in my boots. If I did not know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and know that my sins have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, I would tremble. The very fact that people in our world under this judgment do not tremble outside of Christ shows the depth of iniquity in the human heart. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope for any sinner. Now, the last answer to this question is in some ways the most wonderful of all. Look at this. The reason hell is entirely fair is God shows mercy before judgment. Look at verse 22 and notice this great and amazing prayer. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there, he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Can we all affirm this this morning? Our God is a merciful God. This is past perhaps the most amazing part of this entire narrative. God offers mercy. Now, not tolerance. God is not a tolerant God. But he is abundantly merciful in giving people the opportunity to repent. That's what mercy is. And I want you to notice, this is so important in this prayer of Abraham, the three evidences of the mercy of God. Let's look at the bottom first and work up. God uses believers... To preserve the lost. Why did Abraham stop at ten? Why did he stop at ten believers? Isn't it very likely that he was convinced if there were ten believers? And that's not a large number? God would spare the whole place? Lot's family alone was five. If there were just five more, in five towns, Abraham was convinced God would spare it. You know what happens? When we get to chapter 19, there is only one believer, Lot, and he's a foreigner. Not one other person had responded to God. I'm convinced of this in my own mind. If there had been one other, so that there was two, God may well have spared the whole place. God is a patient God, isn't he? Yes, he is. Notice the second evidence of mercy. 
God places believers to witness to the lost. Do you know how many witnesses God sent to Sodom and Gomorrah? Three. Abraham was the first in chapter 14 when he rescued the captives from the kings of the east. And Bear the king of Sodom came out to meet Abraham, and he was very grateful to get his people back. And Abraham gave glory to God. The second witness was Melchizedek, the king of the town of Salem nearby, and he, he led that town in righteousness and peace, and the Bible says he came out, and he also met Bera, the king of Sodom, and he gave glory to God. And even Lot, the compromised believer, attempted to restrain their evil ways. Lot was the third witness. What would you say? What would you say about a God who would send Abraham, Melchizedek, and even Lot to witness to towns? You would say he's a merciful God. He's a merciful God. And then look at the third evidence of mercy. God moves believers to pray for the lost. This is an amazing prayer that we find in the Bible. The two angels left to head down to Sodom. We will meet them in chapter 19. Remaining behind, standing before Abraham, is the Son of God himself so that Abraham could pray. Do you know in the Old Testament, threefold repetition is very common? Sixfold repetition is rare, it is unheard of. Abraham makes request after request after request six times. Fifty people, forty-five people. 40 people, 30 people, 20 people, 10 people, six requests. How many of those requests did God say yes to? All six. All six. This prayer, it's an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. How many people have prayed for your salvation? How many? Grandparents? Parents? A spouse? Have your children prayed for you? God, save mom, save dad. Your friends, Christians living on your street, your neighbors who have prayed for you. Pastors. Think of all the people collectively that we are praying for right now for their salvation. 
And we are showing the love of Christ to them. Those prayers are the mercy of God to everyone. Charles Spurgeon said this, Sodom and Gomorrah brought hell down from heaven. And he was right. Sodom and Gomorrah brought hell down from heaven. But now we are seeing first, first, the Son of God came down from heaven to offer them mercy. And nothing in all the world could be fair. The Son of God Himself came down from heaven to offer them mercy. And nothing in all the world could be fair. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Today the Lord is imploring you to recognize the great danger you are in. A holy God is a just God. And you must punish sin. But that same God is patient because he is merciful. And he does not wish that you should perish. It is very clear that God did not want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He extended mercy until it was rejected and it was too late. And today, as we have celebrated communion, on the day of this sermon. You have seen how Christ has come down from heaven for you. He went to the cross where his body was broken and beaten and bruised. He poured out his lifeblood that you might be forgiven. And he patiently extends mercy to you.
Cast yourself at the foot of the cross. Let the Lord know that you realize you are a sinner. You are lost. You are without help. Tell him you believe who he is. You believe what he's done for you. You know he's alive today. And tell him the best way that you know how you are repenting. Turning from your way. And turning to him. You're looking away from yourself. And in faith you are entrusting yourself. To Jesus. As Lord and Savior. I want to pray for you now. Just as Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. O Holy Spirit, you alone can open blind eyes. You alone can soften hard hearts. And I pray that you would do that. I pray for men, women, young people, boys and girls that you would speak to them. Show them the great danger that they are in of your eternal wrath and help them to flee to the cross which alone is their refuge from sin. As they leave this place today, do not leave them alone. May their conscience prick them and speak to them and gnaw at them until they have turned to our God. For the Bible says, when we do, He will save, He will abundantly pardon. We ask this now for Jesus' sake. Amen.